This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Dara here. All right. You survived Thanksgiving. You're getting ready for Christmas. You got all of the baking to do. I put my top refrigerator icebox cookies. What do you call them now? Are we still calling them icebox cookies? I think that's nicer. Sounds nice like the old school feeling of it. But, of course, we don't have ice boxes anymore. Um, so those are up at WCCORadio.com. You can find them on my Facebook page, Dara.Grumdahl. You can find them at WCCORadio.com backslash menu or Dara, any of those things. Um, and then we are just having a nice visit this hour. I've got some very, very important but also just nice people who are in the Twin Cities food scene. Steve Horton of Bakersfield Bread and Flour is here. Uh, You know him. He founded Rustica. He went off to the food building in Northeast uh, just doing astonishing, astonishing work up there. We're going to talk about what any of this means these days, artisan Artisan this, heirloom that. What does it mean? And then Jack Rebel is here. And I know you want to know how Jack is doing had his cancer diagnosis. He's been fighting back. What's up at the Lex? We're going to do all the things. I know a lot of you love Jack Rebel. You can text or call in your questions about heirloom flowers or your you know, thoughts you want to pass on to Jack. 651-989-9226. We've got a nice, nice food and thinking about food power hour. That's how we're rolling. All right. <laughs> Steve Horton, welcome to the show. You, I'm not going to list your whole resume because we don't got all day, but you uh, founded Rustica, which was a wonderful bakery. You sold that later. Uh, still a wonderful bakery, but it kind of really changed the orientation of baking in town to really think about the ingredients. And you were not satisfied with what you were doing. And so you sold Rustica. It, it, Soldiers on lovely ways without you. And you went to found Bakersfield Flour and Bread. And this is a miller. We're going to talk about what that means, actually, and a baker. And can be found up at Kieran's Kitchen and in a bunch of the co-ops. I just happened to have your rye bread this morning. It is my – I've talked about it before on the show. It is one of the, like, pillars of my life. I love this rye bread so much. Um, and, and, And it lasts forever. And I'm thrifty. All right, so let's talk about that. Steve Horton, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm happy you're here. All right, so let's just do a couple of the basic things. What does it mean to be both a baker and a miller? Like this is not a made-up thing. You actually, you're milling flour. What does that actually mean? What it means is we're sourcing as much as we can directly from farmers, uh, primarily Minnesota, North Dakota, upper Midwest mainly. And we're looking at how those grains taste, how they perform in terms of texture, and figuring out what kind of breads to best make with them. Uh, so it's it's a way for us to start to look at creating our own small regional grain economy. Small regional grain economy. So I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear that there are still, there were still, there are still 
farmers who are, you know, outside of the giant commodity system? Yes, uh, farmers are, I, I, you know, it's a diverse group. It's like anything else. It's it's hard to generalize, but there are many farmers who are looking for a more direct kind of relationship with the end user, be it a, a miller, a baker, or in this sense, hopefully consumers as well. And we're working primarily with three different farming um, entities. One is Luke Peterson, Dawson, Minnesota, a couple hours west of here. Another is Chad Forsberg, who many uh, restaurant people here know um, as a, a garden and or not garden, but a vegetable kind of guru who's been providing vegetables in the Twin Cities for the, the farmers markets and restaurants for several years. Uh, but he and his cousin Ben Wenzel up in North Dakota and then just over the border in Wisconsin are, are farming a lot of different types of spring wheats and, and barley and durum. Um, and then lastly, we're working with Ben Penner, who's just outside Belle Plaine, who's growing some turkey red, which is considered a heritage grain, along with some uh, more modern uh, hardwood spring wheats. So this has oh, struck me as one of the great um, puzzles, injustices, conundrums inside American food for you know, as long as I've been covering this, which is that you can be the most careful farmer in the world. You can raise the best product in the world if it gets just jumbled into a commodity and kind of the quality of it just gets lost when it's blended with other people's lousy. They didn't do a good enough job. Then, like, where's the glory in it for you? Where's the incentive to consider continue to be excellent, right? Right. Uh, you know, th- what happens in industrial uh, milling as far as is what I start to look at is weed, of course, is our primary driver, is they're looking to create a consistent product. That's their primary goal. And so to do that, they need to bring grain in from all over, um, you know, basically Canada and, and uh, the U.S. to hit a spec range. They're looking for, you know, certain protein percentages, falling numbers, anyway, not to go too far down the rabbit hole. But they're looking for consistency of product, stability of product on the shelf. And what we're doing is is looking at it in a different way. We're looking at it, as you say, the glory of it. What does it taste like? What is it – you look at wine and chocolate and you start to think of those as single origin. What's it like to think about grain from a single origin? What's it like to think about buying your flour that's been milled freshly? Uh, you, would you want to eat an apple that's uh, months and months old or do you want to eat one that's fairly fresh and ripe? And so it's the kind of the same perspective in terms of flour and grain for us. All right. And so I have actually been, as anyone can, if you just go up to the food building in Northeast, it's kind of kitty corner from the old Grain Belt Brewery. You know the old Grain Belt Brewery. It looks like a castle. You can see it for miles and miles around. So right over by there is the food building. And if you walk in the door, it's Kieran's Kitchen. I've been raving about this place. It's a little, it's a conglomerate of a couple of the best food makers in the country. So it's uh, Steve of Bakersfield, who we've been talking to, also Mike Phillips from Red Table, and um, Alamar Keith from Alamar Cheese. And and then they have a chef who's working there kind of doing magical things with the ingredients. It's really inexpensive. If you've ever been to Cassetta's in St. Paul, it's that kind of same model. Like you go and you get a number on your table and you go back and it's very big and it's a really lovely space and it can accommodate wheelchairs and baby strollers and big groups and little groups. And it's just it's just fantastic. Anyway, but if you go up to Kieran's Kitchen, you kind of go away from the main seating area and start peering through the big glass windows. You can see Steve Horton's uh, work area. And I have done this and it's very interesting. And you will see like massive bags of grain, just like a bag of wheat. Like I don't, you know, bigger than me, bigger than my 
bigger, like a lot bigger than me. Uh, and then you 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 grind them. That's what milling is. You turn these giant grains in bags of grain into actual, you know, eventually donuts and things. Exactly. I mean, it, it the whole like you're you're talking about Karen's Kitchen, which for us is a vehicle. Uh, Ian Graves, the chef, has has done a wonderful job of trying to bring these different uh, you know makers um, to his uh, menu and to the plate. And really, it's the only uh, restaurant within a food production facility in the United States that I'm aware of. So it's oh, kind of really, yeah, so it's a really unique experience uh, from that standpoint. And we're still figuring it out. You know, we're working through things. We just started this week with full service uh, instead of counter service at night. Oh. And uh, hopefully evolving over time, we'll be full service all the time. But we're finding that to try to give that full experience, I think, a little bit more. But, yes, come to the back. Work your way back and look through, especially, uh, you know, we love – to to be honest, do I love being in a goldfish bowl uh, or a goldfish in a bowl? No, I don't. But it is is interesting to see how your food is made. And you can look at the mill. You can look at our mixing area and, uh, of course, us shaping and baking. And the idea is that we're milling our flour. We're using a stone mill that we had built for us by Andrew Hain in Vermont, who owns a, a mill bakery as well called Elmore Mountain. And he built uh, this 48-inch stone mill using a bed stone and a runner stone with blue uh, quarry or blue granite from a quarry about an hour from him. Um, and the reason we went with a stone mill is because uh, it was one is expense. Uh, two was the type of tool that we were trying to use to produce whole grain flour primarily. We do sift flour as well to make what's called sifted or bolted flour, but primarily we wanted to be able to emphasize the not only the freshness of the flour, but the nutrient and flavor components that are left in it when you leave a lot of the germ and bran. Because wheat's three primary uh, components are endosperm, germ, and bran. All right. I'm going to slow you down because okay, you're like way down. past okay. like way human okay. understanding. Okay. All right. So uh, what can we <laughs> say here? So wheat is – you know, wheat has a seed, right? That's what we're actually talking right, about. Right, right. And so just like anything else that has a seed, it's got the outside of it, and then it's got stuff on the inside, and the inside has basically a an oil component, which the growing plant would use as food when it first right, gets going, exactly. and then a more starchy bit. So um, those are the three parts you're talking about. And right. so you, when you're talking about sifting, it's maybe taking one of those out for a different flavor, just the way you might with any other kind of right. seed that way. And so... Um, but the the oil, everybody knows, fat is flavor, right? That's where that is. So right. when you're able to actually have that that oil from the wheat and it's fresh and it's new, like that's a big deal. Like that's why we get so excited about the first press olive oil or something like that. Like that's delicious. And almost nobody has it except you have it. Right, right. In the local market, I mean, there's Sunrise as well as doing um, the milling um, of small batch grains. Uh, and that is exactly it. We're trying to, to keep as much of the germ in place as we can and, and much of the bran. So as an example, uh, the, the shelf, the flour you'd buy on an uh, industrial flour on the shelf at a grocery store, most of that is around 70% extraction. So if you have a whole grain and a whole grain is 100%, they're extracting 70%, which is mainly the endosperm, the starch you're talking about. What we're trying to do is extract about 82 to 85%. So all the starch, but then some of the most of the germ and some of the bran. So that enables to get those flavor elements, but also the minerals and vitamins, which are also present there, not only in the bran, but also in the germ. So that's interesting to me because I feel like we live in Mill City. We should know these things and we should know all about this. But uh, I don't know much of this. I'm sure very few of our listeners really understand 
um, that all flour is not flour, all grain raising is not all grain. You know, it's like there's a lot of detail in it that leads to deliciousness that we should know about. But I'm sure, like nobody does, you know, almost nobody does. There's you, maybe a percentage of the of population, and that's that's why everything going on at Kieran's Kitchen is so cool. Um, I was talking to you this morning. I, you, with this whole conversation getting you on the show kind of started because you have a bit of a bee in your bonnet about people misusing heirloom, uh, that it's yeah. a, become one of these wiggle, meaningless words like heir, uh, like heirloom and natural and the things that aren't federally regulated. So there's some food words that are federally regulated. You can't say something is organic and not be organic. That's the law. Some words have just been lost to commercial flim-flam, natural being the great example. Right. Like you could just say anything is natural. You say, I have a natural idea coming to me right now. Would you like to buy it? <laughs> right. So right. heirloom. So what have you seen? You've been doing this pioneering work with individual farmers, uh, but you've now seen people nibbling at the edges trying to trying to get the marketing part without doing the work. Right, exactly. And that it, what it goes more to is consumer education. Um, the idea that we label things heirloom or heritage uh, is romantic, and that, that brings about a certain imagery in people's minds, which I totally understand, and it, it makes sense. However, it does a disservice to the consumer because in the end of the day, we're picking a winner and a loser in a sense because if you say something is romantic and then something's modern – you know, there's a romance and nostalgic element to modern wheat. And so the way it's talked about many times, it ends up being a winner and a loser, demonizing grain in a sense. And so grain in itself is one, especially wheat, is one of the most nutritiously dense foods. And to say that one is necessarily better than the other, I, I would argue that it has more to do with how is it grown, how is the soil treated, how is it processed? And then how is it used by the end user, be it flour or grain or bread in those those cases? So, you know, you can look at fermentation and soil health and all of these different elements. So we start to look at ancient grain, which is spelt, emmer, einkorn, and, and kamut uh, or khorasan. And then you start to get into what is heritage, which most people would argue is anything that has not been man man-made hybridization. So anything that occurred after the 1940s. Um, and then you start to – that's what is considered modern wheat. Um, the the difficulty for me is, again, saying that one is better than the other. They are definitely different and they have different elements to them. But uh, what we should really be is focused on is more how is it grown. You know, All right. Start to that's, talk about- that's good because – You've said a lot of words, and even right, right, right. I, I do this for a living, and I have been following this for 20 years, and it starts to kind of fade to me, like, where where is the, my entry point? So, right, right. So the takeaway for us is the devil is in the details, and the detail to pay attention to is how the wheat is grown. Right, exactly. I mean, uh, you know, there's organic and there's organic, right? Um, I would say organic's a great starting point, but we start to look at regenerative ar- agriculture, so in other words, organic is, is a stepping point, but how is the soil treated? Because you could still be organic and using natural organic herbicides. Right. There are some lousy players. Big, right, you know, right. And big... so it's, it's gotten very ambiguous. But what I'm talking about is looking at somebody like Luke Peterson, as example, who is committed, but not just himself, but his family to regenerative agriculture, which is a huge commitment in terms of cover crops. You know what you grow, and and uh, how much how much uh, soil uh, health is there in terms of you know 
Is there always a plant in the ground for roots to eliminate erosion, uh, you know, working livestock into rotation, changing the crops around? So there's a lot to it that is even beyond me um, as far as what the farmer does. But that starts to look at the long-term health of the soil because if we just keep taking and taking and taking from the soil and using herbicides, pesticides, and everything else that goes along with that to only be focused on yield, well, yield's very important. And uh, we could get into that discussion in a whole a whole conversation. But if that's the only major consideration, at the end of the day, we're going to lose because we're stripping everything out of the soil. And it's washing down and making a big dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, that is a that it, these are all critical parts of the climate change conversation, yeah. the rural health conversation, the rural economy conversation. You lose your land, you have lost everything. Exactly. And a bunch of people still aren't quite on board with that. And as more and more people live in cities, it becomes a little uh, a little lost in the mist. Um, if I could, in some magic way, wave a wand and get good farming rewarded and valued in this culture, I would do that because that would change everything. It would. Um, all right. So we've talked bread. Now we're going to talk circuses. You are making a stolen. That's one of my favorite things, a German right. Christmas bread. Right. So we started doing this a few years ago, and we try to keep growing it every year. Um, it's a fairly expensive product because we put candied fruit in there, uh, hazelnuts that we toast. Currants. Local hazelnuts. I'm so yeah, stoked yeah, to hear yeah. that. And so there, we've been working with the American Hazelnut um, Company, which is a consortium of growers who are trying to bring hazelnut products more to the forefront. The problem with hazelnuts from a consumer standpoint is it takes a long time for them to fruit as far as the plant. And so to get enough to get to a market to make it a substantial is still a work in progress. But we're trying to support that as much as we can. But the the whole idea is naturally fermented or sourdough. What people think of is the stolen is the base of it. We soak the candied fruit and dried fruit in a two gingers whiskey as an homage to Kieran, of course, owns our building and is, uh, is a, a key component to everything that goes on there. Um, and then, uh, you know, it's, it's fermented for um, 48 hours. Uh, when it comes out, we brush it with a, a, a copious, almost sick levels of butter and then put <laughs> sugar over the top of it, of course. So. And this is Germany's claim to fame. If you've never had a good stolen, if you think it's just a fruitcake, you're mistaken. It's a, it's a miracle bread. I love it. A stolen toast on Christmas morning is everything. It is wonderful. All right. So you can find this up at Kieran's Kitchen. You can see what is going on at Bakersfield. Give yourself a little uh, postgraduate education in the meaning of <laughs> good flour. Uh, Steve Horton, thank you for, for coming in today. And thanks for all you're doing to I don't know move the conversation forward about good farming and good grains and good bread and and letting us know what it means to live in Mill City with a real miller. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate the kind words. Thank you. All right. We're going to take a little break here. We're going to come back. We're going to talk icebox cookies. And later on this hour, Mr. Jack Rebel, chef, he's in. He's going to tell us about his inspiring story <laughs> when we come back. All right. If you're not hip to the situation, <laughs> iceboxes in the olden days, people would actually take a block of ice and put it in their house, and that was the place where things were refrigerated. You got all kinds of good jokes about children being fathered by the Icemen, all kinds of things. Those were the days that I did not live in. But the word lives on in our wonderful culture. And, um, you know, actually, I've seen maps of, like, Lake Minnetonka and how it was platted for ice rights. People would go out there and, and 
claim their ice and then deliver it to people in the cities. I always wondered about that, if there ended up being leaves and fish, things like that in them. I don't know. That, these are things I wonder about. Anyway, ice box cookies live on. And that means you're making a dough and then you're rolling it into a log or you know forming it into a rectangle or whatever. Seems good to you. And then you are slicing the cold dough into, you know, just like a loaf of bread. You're going chuk, 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 slicing along. And then you can just bake them whenever. So you can make icebox cookie dough right now. You can make it this weekend. You can have it at Christmas. And you can be really like Martha Stewart and just have a, a log of dough in your icebox. And then if people come over, you'd be like, look at me. I'm a miracle. I make cookies when people come over in a flash. Chick, chick, chick. There you are. Fun thing to do with little kids, too. If you've got some grandbabies who are the difficult years, you know, three, four, five, and they just want to do the glory parts, the decorating. You know how it is. I know how it is. Is there anything more charming than a totally mess of a sugar cookie decorated by a three-year-old? I do love those so much. All right. These are... The ones I've put out some of these prior years. It's a tradition here on Off the Menu. The spicy Mexican chocolate icebox cookies. So I like this. This is um, just taking a chocolate cookie and just putting a little more in it, make it a little more distinct. I do not like a boring cookie. Uh, I got a Facebook message last year asking if you could use chipotle or ghost peppers instead of just a little regular pepper or cayenne pepper. Um, I would say yes to the chipotle, but if you use ghost peppers, that's a Christmas prank. I'm not going to be involved in it. That's not a good idea. Don't do it. All right. These are these are the ones that everybody talks about every year. It's the triple ginger ginger snaps. Call out to ginger snaps, one of them, life's greatest cookies. I do not like a wimpy ginger cookie. So this is a this is a triple ginger. It's got some good old fashioned dried ginger, uh, crystallized ginger, and fresh three gingers, one cookie. All right, and so that's up at wccoradio.com, Dara or menu, or you can find the link on my Facebook page, Dara Grumdahl. Midnight cookies. You like a cookie recipe which starts with a pound of chocolate? That's what I like. I like any <laughs> pound of chocolate. I'm in. I'm there. I like it. Here's another one. These look very pretty, very pretty on a cookie exchange plate. Pistachio cranberry icebox cookies. So the cranberries kind of look like little jewels. Pistachios are green. That's Christmas. Also, love pistachios. So that's good. That's a really good recipe. Pinwheel cookies. You know, this one you take a roll, uh, you take a layer of one cookie dough, a layer of another cookie dough. You roll them up. And then when you slice through, pinwheels. Very good to do. Um, I like the recipe I got up there. I put up two bonus cookies for people on specialized diets. I'll just be on the on off the menu's website page at WCCORadio.com. A keto chocolate chip cookie and a gluten-free. Um, hearkening back to our conversation with Steve Horton from Bakersfield Flour. You can buy Bakersfield Flour either there at... Kieran's Kitchen or at a bunch of the co-ops, and then you're making it with good flour. Look at you, cutting edge. Amazing. Merry Christmas to you. (laughs) All right, we're going to take a little break. We're going to come back and have Jack Rebel of the Lexington.
want you to put your head in your Wayback Machine <laughs> and remember when we were at the Back to the 50s car show last June. Jack Rebel was the guest. I think of I think of Jack when I think of St. Paul things. He's the chef of the Lexington. The Lexington is the most iconic St. Paul restaurant, possibly the most iconic Minnesota restaurant. I'll think about that. Uh, and Jack came, and little did I know he was concealing that he had just gotten some lousy news. Managed to keep that on the down low from us all. Um, this has got to be Jack's fifth, sixth, eighth time on the show at this point in the seven years of the glorious off the menu uh, on the run. And so next thing I knew, uh, everybody was talking. Jack had a cancer diagnosis. Then I talked to him. I wrote a big piece about it. It was very brave. He came out and kind of talked about it. I mean, it's it's still a stigma for for men especially, I think, to talk about um, getting sick and, and coping with it and dealing with vulnerability and suffering and all the things. And uh, we had a big outpouring. Jack has got to have worked with 25 up-and-coming chefs in the Twin Cities, and a lot of young men came out and said, you know, what he had meant to him, them, um, how touched they were by all of this. It was a, it was a big outpouring of, of support and compassion and love. And lo and behold, Jack is doing a lot better. I want to have him in. So get the news across to the land of what's going on. So Jack Rebel, I'm so happy to see you just in your general feistiness back in the saddle. <laughs> I feel like I'm getting it back finally. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me on. All right. So let's go through this. You've been on a roller coaster. I am curious about... Your decision, because kitchens are so macho, right? You can never blink. Like, you have to just be in the fire all the time. And you made the choice to talk out loud in public about, you know, you're being forced to blink. Yeah, it's interesting, right? I, You know, likely no kitchen's more macho than mine, at least I have a reputation as that. But I do, I do know what was important to me. And honestly, it was fueled by reading an article on Steve Jobs, which I know I shared with you. Um about regret. And I just thought to myself, man, I've had such a wonderful life being a kid from St. Paul. And thank you. Um, I'm happy to represent anything St. Paul. That's an honor. Uh, And I felt as though I needed to know that I didn't have regret regardless of my health situation. Right. I wanted to feel grateful and not remorseful. So regret in terms of not being in touch with people. Was that? Yeah. Or maybe not achieving what you wanted to, what's your legacy. I mean, I feel like suddenly the storyline of your life all comes to the forefront, right? And you begin to really reflect on the things that have gotten you to where you are. And for me, it was important to make a statement that I was grateful because I do feel really fortunate. And I feel like I've been afforded a lot of opportunity for the hard work that I've, that I've had. Um, Yeah. So you've been just laboring and kicking it since, I mean, just, just the tens of thousands of thousands of meals that you've made. You started working when you were a teenager in St. Paul, and you've just been hauling ever since. I've never stopped. And, you know, you don't blink is what you said earlier, right? I mean, kitchens, you just show up every day and you do the same thing over and over again. And I think we have this idea that it's some glamorous job as seen on TV as these celebrities, but the reality is there's hundreds of thousands of us every day doing the same thing. It's redundant. It's hard. 
Uh, it feels oftentimes unrewarding, I think, for a lot of people. It's very often precarious. You might show up and all of a sudden the kitchen door is locked, your knives are inside. <laughs> the power goes out. I mean, you name it. And honestly, in, you know, in my brief three years at the Lexington, I feel like a culmination of 35 years of those things happening have all happened to me in three years, <laughs> not to mention then being diagnosed and being sick. And I guess, you know, you take it for granted when you're working hard every day and being able to do everything that you want to do and can do to suddenly not being able to do any of it. It's kind of uh, harrowing. So it was very brave of you to, to come out and kind of talk about everything. And, and after I wrote what, you know, wrote your, you know, interviewed you, interviewed people you'd work with, you know, it turned into a, a very unusual spectacle, which is a bunch of men expressing their love for each other in public, <laughs> which has never happened before. <laughs> Unless you had a brewery, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, their professional regard and stuff. And I was getting, you know, late night texts for weeks afterwards. I get three in the morning after shift texts of people telling me anecdotes and uh, rebelisms and different things. I mean, so it was... Uh, it, people came out of the woodwork. I was seeing on your Facebook page, people were contacting you from Japan and po- points it of was really, uh It was really quite, uh, as, you know, quite fascinating to see. And thank you, because I think your article really was the catalyst for that. Um, I don't know how you chose the photo, but that was okay. <laughs> <laughs> We had it this funny, like, Popeye the Sailor Man kind of looking photo. Well, I have a little bit of that reputation, you know. Uh, yeah, I, I was really, really touched. And again, this was the point of talking about it, right? Is you want to feel grateful and you realize uh, the effect that you have on people with cooking and food and your career and hospitality. And, and really it was an outpouring of people that I've, you know, given time to and shared with. And, and I, it was really, really, uh, I don't know. I don't want to cry on the radio. It was really, uh, it was really, really (laughs) rewarding. I mean, it made me feel like all the work's not in vain. And, and, you know, we were just talking about being on the radio seven years and what you're doing. And we talked about, you know, getting on the bus and going where you want to go or getting off. And I think for a lot of chefs, maybe men, if we want to say that, we feel like every day it's a drudgery and you do this with little or no result and it feels tedious or it feels frustrating. And and that was a rewarding moment for me. To know that really the things that I've done over 35 years have really, you know, paid dividends and touched people's lives. And that's important for me. Yeah, it was a bit of a, a This American or oh, this Wonderful Life moment in your own life. Like you got to see that. But it was very it was it's also a bit of an odd thing. Part of the reason that I wanted to write that story was that I was just hearing rumors all over the place. And it's like in this day of social media, you kind of need to control your story or it goes off, you know, that can go off the rails in all kinds of weird ways. Um, So it was very brave of you. And it was kind of, I really thank you for that. I think it allowed a lot of people, there have been other stories since then in town of um, chefs kind of being more open with what's going on with their health. And it's, uh, I think that's all about you. And, And you went first and then people saw that bad things did not happen. You didn't get fired. You didn't get abandoned. You didn't get yelled at for expressing vulnerability. Like, and so it was a brave, brave thing. And, and it has changed the culture, but let's talk about present day life. You're back, baby. I am. I am. I actually was really fortunate to, uh, to respond to treatment really well. Unfortunately, I have a very rare cancer, as you know, a neuroendocrine tumor, and it doesn't go away, so I don't get to go in remission. Um, I'm currently on a maintenance therapy, which, quite frankly, is almost as frustrating as the chemotherapy, but uh, it's, you know, <laughs> it's the positive option, right? And so I just try to remain positive, and it's really good just every day to feel like I have more and more energy and an opportunity to get back to things that I love to do. 
I think I didn't realize how sick I was. Me and my oncologist, and, and bless him because he's amazing, said to me, your energy level is really, really amazing, but you don't know how sick you are. That's what he said to me. Oh, well, that's, I think that's your willpower. That's the, 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 the chef, ah, the chef Jack we all know and love. <laughs> the, uh, all right. So you're back. Lexington is going great guns. Yeah, um, it's busy. It's great. I love that place. It has, you have really breathed so much life into it. We were, uh, given some people guff in the green room for their construction taking so long. And then you were like, well, I can't talk because that was a four (laughs) years or something, three and a half. It was a long renovation. Well, and it was, you know, she's the grand dame of St. Paul and she needed a lot of attention. You know what I mean? And you have uh, done it. I love, I've become more and more fond of the little jazz space. It's not little, the large bar that is a jazz space off to one side. Uh, what do you call that space again? I forget. That's the Williamsburg Room. The Williamsburg uh, Room. own designation, correct. You know, and part of it was it came with a piano. I mean, it was there. And my ties to the Dakota, my love of jazz, I just, you know, I wanted to have an element of that. I thought it was really important for the kind of the supper club genre, but also um, for my soul because I love live music. And it's been nice. People can just kind of pop in uh, without plans, and there's always a party going on. It's like that old supper club kind of vibe. So that's my that's my thing. All right. I am happy that you are back. You look fantastic. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, my hair is coming back. Yeah, it's looking good. <laughs> All right, everybody, go visit Jack Rebel at the Lexington. Support our people. Love your people. We're going to take a little break here. We'll come back with a little Ask Me Anything. You got a text, got a question for me, 651-989-9226. Oh, Dara here. All right. Only scant two minutes to talk to you about all the things. I got a question about my – I was – you can follow me on Twitter, at Dear Dara. I'm unbound. And I uh, got a question about reading Christmas Carol to my kids out loud. Um yeah, it's apps totally doable. Go get yourself a cheap copy of Christmas Carol. Read it out loud. Uh, I don't care if your kids are teenagers or if they're in their 40s. It is a delightful way to spend the time. Maybe, you know, do some knitting, uh, cook to get, you know, maybe. Yeah, it's not a hard thing to do when you're cooking, but it's just so nice to sit by the Christmas tree. And it's a beautiful story, perfectly told. So, yes, you can do it. I recommend it. Uh, I don't know what the food tie-in is. Uh, do that with a cup of tea. Okay, so what's happening around here next week? The heirs to the joy of cooking. The joy of cooking. Was that your first cookbook? It's a lot of people's first cookbook, but there's a new edition coming out. It's really big. The other, the old ones were big. This one, significantly bigger. How big can a book get? We're going to probably find out in 10 years, but this year we're going to have the, the writers behind it. So what has the joy of cooking meant to you over the years? I'll try to get a Facebook discussion about that going during the year, uh, during the week rather. So check out Dara.Rumdahl. Joy of cooking has meant a lot to me. I often, if I see a really tricked out version of a recipe, I will check joy of cooking first to see what uh, the normal version looked like first (laughs) before I get involved. Um, So I'm excited to talk about this book. It's a foundation of American cooking. So get all your joy of cooking anecdotes sorted out because I would like to hear them. And then, you know, just pack, put them up in a pile on the kitchen table and then we will get to them all next week when I meet you back here on countdown edition of Off the Menu. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. 
It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.